sky was a beautiful shade of gray. After faking an injury, Jonathan snuck into the quarterfinals, then, fresh off of sitting on his ass, made it to the finals, where he found me waiting. He lumbered over, greasy, already hurting. The thing about bullies is they are in an abusive relationship with the law, with rules. They need the rules, need the status quo, but they can't stand it. Like a husband who beats his wife but needs her to feel big, and the wife who takes it but cannot leave, or vice versa. I knew Jonathan knew he needed to win, but I also knew he knew that he could not play fair, and thus he was scared, riled up. The yard had palm trees on it, but was mostly cement, bungalows and a fence and buildings a thicket of lunch tables and handball courts, a baseball kickball diamond. It was endless. And beyond that lay who knows. I had not been out yet on a food run, playing it strong but knowing I was still in my safe area, that I was crouching and a bit paranoid, playing the leader but folding to thee who I was supposed to be leading. For they were black, white, Latino, Asian American, Native American, young, seasoned, gay, straight, transgender, immigrant, native-born, Muslim, Christian, atheist. They were ragged, tagged, and amazing, bootstrapped and bombing their physics tests. I wanted to work for them. Jonathan wandered onto the court like a leech. I flipped him the ball. I was standing at the halfway line in the middle of the circle. The bully bent down, hurting, to pick up the module of his demise. He flipped it back to me. The whole town, or schoolyard, began to gather around. Joey and Ted stopped playing handball, stopped slapping that thing with the sides of their wrists, one bounce after the board, two you're done, and joined the crowd. The neoliberal chic was somewhere in the corner flipping his coin, and everybody else had basically disbanded from their previous associations, caught up in the fucking moment of the final game of the tournament. I didn't know what to call it. It was me versus him. It was some opportunist hack who jerked off to the law and then exploited those very same rules to crush the very people who gave him a chance, who would have dodged the law for him and actually did. He was a coward and I didn't have any problem with the idea of taking him out. We were playing to ten, best two out of three, ball's mine. If there's an opposite to an abusive relationship with the law, that love-hate thing, that validation, smashing, bully, boarding school, it is truly not giving a shit beyond the rhythm of your body. Not no iambic pentameter, not no Shakespeare, just you and what you can die for, what you have no choice but to live for. The only interesting thing happened when Ted yelled, you motherfucker, right when Jonathan was feeling truly in charge and somehow managed to fuck up his ego, to shake him right in the part of oneself one can never, ever fake. The real confidence, the real thing. Ted had an insight, apparently. He somehow knew 
that someone who did not have this weakness would not have caved right now. They wouldn't have flinched. They would have stood sturdy. They would not have had to think about it. And that was when it was 1-1, tied up at 9. And I jumped back and sank a fadeaway just after I saw Ted see that Jonathan saw him and pitied himself, Jonathan, for this is what losers do. A wind blew over the dusty yard as leaves splayed about, and just then, as the rest of us orphans in an abandoned world erupted in song and solidarity, when I sank that shot, and even though Jonathan tried to cry foul again, nobody gave a fuck. It was greatness beyond the law, beyond the status quo, beyond rules, beyond statisticians, beyond pundits, that last whoosh, beyond demagoguery. It came down to the rhythm of our bodies. Just then, as I sank it and our skins were hot with joy and captured, and the California air was about 70 degrees, the sky opened up in a warm rain that smelled like asphalt. It was real rain, a popular rain, a universal rain, material rain. We grabbed the trash cans we had converted into rain buckets and set them up. incontinence and impotence has anything to do with anything. What's your economic plan? What a fucking shame. You won because of us, not in spite of us. But your pathetic outlook can't figure it. 
subject popular policy to ruthless platitudes and you my friend will rue the day Demagoguery forms out of a need to believe in something. When the crops are dying, then don't piss on me and call it rain. so far looks exactly like you would expect and I don't mean that in a good way the list includes chief of staff Ron Klain counselor to the president Steve Reschetti office of public engagement director Cedric Richmond and deputy chief of staff Jen O'Malley Dillon contributing editor of current affairs former national press secretary for the Sanders campaign co-host of the bad faith podcast Brianna Joy Gray she joins us now to weigh in on the appointment so far Brianna it's good to see you thanks for joining us it's always a pleasure of course. So let's get your immediate reaction to kind of the people that Biden has selected in his campaign so far. I mean, I think it's largely expected on everybody here's account. What are some of the lessons that we can take away from these personnel decisions? Look, there was a lot of discussion prior to the election about how leftists, progressives, anyone who had supported other candidates in the Democratic primary needed to fall in line and vote for Joe Biden because we were going to be able to push him left. And fundamentally, he was someone who believed in science, who understood what the stakes were before us, who had a basic understanding of decency and what the American people needed, who knew that we only had 10 years to avoid the most cataclysmic 
cataclysmic effects of climate change. And now do, what do we see? A slate of appointments that kind of flies in the face of any kind of substantive understanding of those ideas, and which really undermines the idea that we would be able to pressure him to move in a leftward direction, left, mind you, to where the majority of Americans are. Yeah, well, let's talk about, I mean, the person in particular I think you're referring to here is Congressman Cedric Richmond, whose district, one of the most polluted in the country, he also takes more oil and gas and chemical money than almost any other Democrat in this entire city, which is really saying a lot. Um, how should, you know, these young climate activists who held their nose and got behind Joe and got in there to get out the vote of young people to get behind him, how should they feel about this? Yeah, you know, spokespeople from um, the Sunrise Movement, uh, Rajini Prakash and others have issued statements, tweeted out, saying how disappointed they are in this choice. And I think, you know, they're in a tough position because, you know, they were held out and their negotiations over the course of the summer with the Unity Task Force were really held out as emblematic of the kind of work the left could do to hold Joe Biden and the Democratic Party accountable to these interests, which are shared by majorities of Americans. I never want to fail to stress that overwhelming majorities of Americans support climate reform and a Green New Deal. And this is someone who has said explicitly that he does not support a Green New Deal, that he doesn't think that we should be talking, even talking about policies that he doesn't think that we can pass. This is not the leadership that we bargained for. And now a lot of moderates are pushing back saying it's inappropriate for a climate activist to be upset with this pick because uh, uh, Cedric Richmond happens to be black. This is a person who, whose district is, as you mentioned, Crystal, one of the most polluted, I think uh, seven out of um, seven of the 10 most polluted um, air tracks in America are in his district. And yet we're supposed to believe that the fact that he is himself African-American takes precedence over the thousands or hundreds of thousands of African-Americans who live in his district and are subjected to that kind of poor air quality and, and environmental horror. Right, yeah, it's kind of identity politics at its worst. Brianna, I guess the question is, is so this is the centrist pushback. They're like, look, Sunrise, we don't need you. You gave us an F minus and you all still voted for us, so who cares? Like, wh why should we listen to what you have to say? We just won the presidency without you, you know? Just eat it, basically. Yeah, and it, it's it's difficult. Um, you know, this is why I was so interested in having a conversation about leverage prior to the election, because although obviously organizing doesn't happen exclusively in the context of electoral cycles, you cannot ignore the very real and immediate pressure that a um, threat to withhold one's vote until more serious commitments are made is now i don't i you know i don't know that that would have worked anyway joe biden is is open to changing his mind and flip-flopping all over the place and doing what he wants once he's in office especially since he's someone who has indicated that he might not even be seeking a second term right there are limitations to how much that kind of threat can work but at the end of the day i think it's going to be incumbent on all those who are truly invested in science and truly invested in the future of our planet to not hold any punches when it comes to describing the um kind of um a flippant and uh, unscientific and incredible way that the Biden campaign is approaching these issues. And yeah. the fact that Democrats are the good guys shouldn't, shouldn't um, blind folks to the extent to which they need to be held accountable. Yeah. Are they the good guys? That's the question. <laughs> I mean, they're maybe better guys. Um, I mean, Brianna, you and I never held our tongue, um, even though we were always under tremendous pressure to do so. Yeah. But we heard a million times, just get through the election and then it's open season we're all going to say what we really think we're going to hold their feet to the fire and all of that 
But I'll tell you the dynamic I see unfolding. You got Trump out there. He's refusing to concede. Reports say he's probably going to just go ahead and announce for 2024, or at least hold that out as a possibility. And so Democrats continue to have this specter of the existential threat of Trump to use to keep everybody in line. So how do you think that will play out? And what is the next? Okay, the, the election as a point of leverage, that's gone and that's over. What is the next point of leverage? How should progressives be thinking about, rather than just you know putting out statements and here's what we'd like, how they can actually apply pressure to get what they want? And, and if it's not Trump, by the way, it'll be Tom Cotton or someone else in this large uh, cabinet of horribles they have to parade upon us. All right, uh, all right, <laughs> go ahead. You know, the, the reality is there is some pressure to exert um, during midterms, right? We saw in 2018 that progressivism, I think, was rightly attributed, um, progressive policies rather, to a lot of the gains that um, the Democratic Party made in 2018. And in fact, a failure to herald those very issues uh, in this most recent cycle in 2020 is, has been attributed, um, has been blamed for uh, the the Democratic Party's failure to uh, win the Senate, so far at least, and to lose seats in the House. So I think that if the party were smart, they would recognize what enormous value there is um, in these local elections to people running on a Green New Deal, which about you know 70-some Americans support uh, across the, the aisle, on running on these issues like Medicare for All and marijuana legalization and emphasizing a $15 minimum wage, issues that won all across the country, even in districts where Joe Biden himself was unable to prevail. And I, I think that getting more and more um, Congress members who can speak truth to that reality and speak to their personal experiences, the enormous success of the squad, which is now doubled in size, these actors need to continue, as they have been doing, to ring the alarm and make it more difficult for the Democratic Party to hide behind this veneer of being the good guy, of, of resting on their laurels as just better than the Republican Party, because the environment requires us to do a lot better um, than they're doing so far. Mm. Brianna, who's on the Bad Faith Pod this week? God is a demagogue. God is a demagogue. God is a demagogue. A great version of one of the best songs of all time.
Never arrives. 